Good morning and welcome to the Coffee and Cap Rates podcast, your go-to source for New York City's latest commercial real estate insights. This program is brought to you by Ariel Property Advisors. Also, we have Margaret and Richard and Jesse. Thank you so much for being here. It's exciting for all of us to, to hear you out. And what I'd like to start with, if that's okay, um, Margaret, maybe you'll tell us a little bit about you, a little bit about T30, your company, and if you want to talk about one deal or something that gets you excited, uh, please do so. Sure, great. Um, how's this? Good? Awesome. Okay, thanks so much, Shimon. So T30 Capital, uh, we're New York-based middle market real estate investment. We do work across the capital stack. We're busy in lending right now, private credit bridge lending. Uh, we also do condominium development and multifamily. Um, we are a successor company from our predecessor, which is Sugar Hill Capital, which a lot of people probably have heard of in the context of the discussion around rent stabilization. So I'm going to get into that. Um, definitely, it's a, you know, a lot to talk about there. Um, and also Fort Amsterdam Capital, which is our predecessor lending entity. So we're folding both of those into T30 and kind of looking to move forward and pivot. And what that looks like for us, what we're working on now, the project we're excited about, um, we're in pre-development on a boutique condominium development in downtown Manhattan. Um, and I think, you know, you talked about that kind of Manhattan is on sale, right? So land prices are at 30-year lows. And if you can find a site that works that's in a prime area, I think that's definitely a theme is kind of the reversion back to kind of prime locations. Um, that's keeping us busy. And, you know, we're very busy on the lending side as well. Um, Awesome. That's it. Question for you. So just, I know we're going to ask questions in a minute, but I'm curious. So when did you buy that land about? Uh, August of last year. August so last, last we went under contract like right in the kind of early part of 23 in the spring. That's great. So you saw an opportunity, land values were down. You said we're buying this and developing. That's a great, great opportunity for us and so on. I, I like that a lot. I think think that's what we're seeing as well. If there's a prime location that can commit a certain pricing, except construction costs and construction lending is harder, but yep. yes. Awesome. But not as hard as owning rent-stabilized buildings, so we're just <laughs> not afraid. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, I, I'm Richard Roberts. I guess I will start by just uh, taking a poll question to the audience. How many people in the audience are familiar with the low-income housing tax credit or LIHTC? Okay, so fair number of them, great. So I don't have to go through all that. Um, so I am a uh, principal at Redstone Equity Partners. We are a pure play uh, tax credit syndicator. Uh, we have invested um, on behalf of 65 institutions. Uh, we've invested about $10 billion of tax credit equity since 2015 in 48 states. Uh, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. We have a portfolio of, um, geez, uh, almost 700 buildings, about 65,000 units, um, and uh, there are three aspects of our company. We have a uh, pretty active uh, investor relations group that kind of uh, interacts with uh, Community Reinvestment Act-oriented banks uh, and insurance companies who invest in, the, and invest in the funds. We have a very active acquisitions uh, group that focuses and spends time with developers who, um, who develop projects that generate the credits that we buy from them and then sell to the investors. And then we have a very uh, robust 
uh, portfolio management, asset management group that handles compliance, uh, underlying compliance of the of the uh, of the properties with the program, and does um, institutional quality and in, uh, investor um, reporting and uh, and so forth. Um, we have about a hundred people. Um, we are in. Uh, we have. Op six offices, and as of January 2024, we are based and headquartered here in New York at 90 Park. We used to be, um, we used to be based in Cleveland. Um, I'm from Cleveland, so I was okay with that, but, uh, but, uh, but now that, was, but I've lived in New York for 35 years, so I'm okay with that too. Um, so that's, uh, that's Redstone and happy to get into it and talk about it. And one project that we're particularly proud of is um, a project we financed uh, called 425 Grand Concourse that we did with uh, Trinity Financial. Uh, it's a 277 unit, 26 story building um, uh, on the Grand Concourse. Uh, it's kind of the we consider it to be the crown jewel of the of the Mott Haven uh, revitalization. You know, when you go from the tip of Manhattan into uh, into the Bronx, you see a tremendous amount of new construction and development activity uh, just south of Yankee Stadium, uh, and we believe that that building is the best building uh, in that whole uh, in that whole constellation. It is the largest passive house in North America. Um, and it is just a, it's just a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal building. They have uh, high, uh, high-end art uh, in the building. It's just, it, it just uh, makes your day when you, when you go visit it. So we're proud of that building. We invested uh, about 55 million of tax credit equity and some, uh, and some conventional equity on behalf of TD Bank to support the, um, uh, to support uh, the. Um, uh, the mixed income nature of the uh, of the property. So, uh, and it's also got some uh, a health clinic and the ground floor. It's just fabulous. So, that's uh, that's a property we're we're very proud of. That's good. And, and before Jesse, you just have follow up question. What was how who gave you the debt? Was it AGC? Was it bond? Or uh, it was financed by it was financed by HDC okay. uh, with uh, with a, uh, a letter of credit uh, support with from TD Bank. Thank you. TD did the whole thing. One last thing about you. I know you yep. were in government as well before. Uh, yeah, so uh, I have done just about everything one could do in affordable housing uh, in that market. Uh, I've been uh, with a nonprofit developer. I, uh, I was the HPD commissioner. I, I was the first employee in the Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group. Um, in uh, in 2000, so I've done a number of different things in the in the sector. Um, 27 years ago, when we when my wife and I got married, uh, she turned to me and said, "Richard, the internships have got to stop." Uh, <laughs> and uh, I moved around, still moved around a little bit, but finally finally settled in one place. So That's I've been at Redstone 13 years. So thank you. That's awesome, Jesse. Uh, yes, um, my name is Jesse Terry. I'm the CIO for Hub NYC. Hub NYC has been around for approximately 12 years. It's a direct investment platform for a state pension fund. We own approximately 90 properties, mainly residential and retail. We only invest in New York City. Um, an investment that I am proud of in recent time um, would be our purchase of the AIMCO portfolio, which is approximately 26 buildings, 360 units. Very consolidated walk-ups on the Upper West Side and uh, very scattered walk-ups on the Upper East Side. One uh, facet of it that made it so interesting was that it was coming out of COVID and is very indicative of how rental patterns change coming out of COVID. 
the studios that made up a large part of the Upper East Side were very vacant, and the rents there were $1,800 per month studios in these walk-ups. But we have walk-ups in the Upper East Side, and before COVID, they were $2,300, they were $2,400. It was just a remarkable difference, and you know they should be rented normal times. Um, so it took a while before studios came back because first two bedrooms rented up and one bedrooms rented up, dormant buildings rented up. But those studios did rent up. And uh, on the Upper West Side, it was interesting because no one believed in neighborhood retail anymore. And uh, these uh, Upper West Side properties were very consolidated onto you know, one city block between 68th and 69th in Columbus. And boy, did retail, neighborhood retail, come back um, you know, out of COVID. So that was amazing to watch. So it really gave us two interesting aspects of how the neighborhoods really recovered um, and relatively quickly coming out of COVID. Awesome. Thank you. And, and that was the AIMCO portfolio? Yes. Yes. Cool. That's, uh, I remember that. I think uh, Vic and I looked at it at some point. It was, uh, was uh, exciting to see that you guys uh, were in it. You know what? Why don't we stay with you for a second? Because you did start talking about rents, which I think is, is, is interesting. Um, where do you see rents today, especially in these better locations, so to speak? Um, and, and also, what is the makeup of tenancy that you see today compared to pre-pandemic, if, if there is any change? Well, pre-pandemic, the market was extremely efficient. Um, what happened during the pandemic uh, was I think everyone was generally wealthier. Um, and people had saved a lot of money by living at home. People got COVID stimulus. Um, stocks were doing pretty well. Um, so our renters, they consume more space. If they were previously living in a studio, they started renting one bedrooms. Um, young families that traditionally pre-COVID would probably be in a, a one bedroom sharing it were now in two bedrooms with someone working from home. I think you'd probably follow the uh, Peloton stock price and uh, just see how uh, you know, that played out. Um, and it continues to change. I mean, two bedrooms were you know, doing far better than, for instance, studios. Um, that pattern has changed a lot in recent time where uh, financially I think renters are becoming more conservative. So the, the renter base hasn't changed, but how they consume space has changed dramatically uh, throughout the past couple of years. Like, for instance, the Lower East Side, which was, from our portfolio, 30% over pre-COVID levels. Just really amazing how quickly the Lower East Side came back in those sort of hot, live, work, play neighborhoods. Well, now that is really plateaued in our more affordable portfolio, like the Upper East Side and um, places that have a lower rent per square foot. Well, those are doing best now. So I think there's either an affordability ceiling on uh, some neighborhoods now, and uh, people are you know, looking for more affordable options and certainly downsizing the uh, space, like the, you know, the, the one bedrooms that are smaller are much more popular now. The stu excuse me, studios are extremely popular right now. So uh, we're seeing that, which is really interesting, just changing consumption patterns. Yeah, we've, we've heard that before, that the smaller units are getting a higher clearly higher prices per foot, but also more demand in general. And it's interesting what you're saying. You're saying basically people are moving from uh, very in-demand locations because they have a price ceiling into, let's say, the Brooksons and the Queens and so on is, is uh, super, super interesting and insightful. Astoria um, was our lead neighborhood uh, that? last year. Astoria was our lead neighborhood Here in terms of year-over-year -year growth. Interesting. So Astoria. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Richard, I want to 
ask you about, so you're not doing free market, you're doing affordable housing. Um, I want to ask you about the interest of government and capital, how they intertwine, how do you align on that? I mean, you've, you've held positions in both. How does it work? Where do you find value there? So um, the, um, the tax credit, uh, which is the principal way that, that affordable housing gets uh, constructed throughout the country, once, um, once the federal government got out of direct, uh, directly building housing through uh, public housing authorities, um, so the tax credit is the principal way that new, new construction of housing occurs and, and substantial rehabilitation in the affordable market. Uh, but the credit only gets you so far. You, you have to pair that credit up with the equity raised uh, by that credit with um, typically public subsidies, uh, discounted land prices, typically you know on public publicly owned land. You'll see that model uh, um, playing out all over the all over the country. And so there's been this kind of there's been this kind of longstanding symbiotic uh, public private partnership mindset. And mentality that's always supported the uh, always supported the um, the uh, the affordable market. New York City has been unique for for many years, kind of coming out of the financial crisis of the 70s. New York decided to do something that no other uh, local government uh, was willing to do, which was to consider housing almost like infrastructure and to use um, money from geo bonds and the city's capital program, direct capital program, to invest in the construction of affordable housing in the same way that they build firehouses or police precincts or repair roads. That same money went into the, went into the affordable program. So there's always been this kind of mindset of collaboration, including tax abatements and, and so forth. Um, we can talk about that's, that mindset starting to change a little bit, and we can talk a little bit about that. But that's really where the spirit of partnership, in answering your question directly, yeah. that's where the spirit of, of, of partnership really comes from. Yeah, it's interesting because what happened, we started like trafficking in this affordable area 20 years ago. And one of the things we've seen on existing buildings is the you know, acquisition preservation deals, right? That, that where you could do LIHTC on project-based Section 8. Yeah. And you know what happened? They stopped that. Yeah. And now it's all... Uh, mission-driven capital, real equity that goes into it, and that's a big change. Yeah, yeah big change. Yeah. I mean, part of it is that part of it is that the the need for uh, for affordable housing has been so severe um, here. I mean, we've been under the we've been under the uh, the reason the rent regulation regime exists, right, is that we've been under a housing emergency since the end of World War II, uh, a technical housing emergency under state state law uh, in New York City since the end of World War II, which is the, which is the legal basis for the rent regulation regime. Um, and so um, since the, that need has always been so severe, the ability of state and local government to finance it and support it uh, has changed over time. You know, it, it's not unlimited. And so uh, policymakers have had to make some very strategic choices about where they're going to put re limited resources. Are we going to fund 8020s? No, we're not going to do that. We're going right. to we're going to we're going to maybe uh, adopt a program like MIH where we can where we can internally subsidize the placement of affordable in a in a market rate building. Are we going to um, are we going to allocate tax credits to a to an ACT rehab? 
no, we're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to allocate that scarce resource yeah. someplace else, and we're going to we're going to maybe use a resource that maybe is not as as precious in those you know those situations. Still going to support it, but we're going to do it differently. And so we understand that context. I would just say that one thing that's changed over the last four or five years has been even maybe the last decade has been the mindset of particularly the political establishment here in New York City uh, and how it thinks about the people that provi provide affordable housing. They are particularly calling in question the value of that public-private partnership mm -hmm. uh, and whether they believe that um, particularly private actors have, um, have done too well in that bottom, double bottom line mm -hmm. uh, context mm -hmm. that you, you, you lay out is, has the doing well far exceeded the doing good equation. And um, so it's an interesting, we're at an interesting inflection point in the conversation. I yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we've, so, we've seen it, and Margaret will tell you more about it in a second, but uh, we've seen it in HSTPA, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, for example. I mean, the alignment was there. I mean, when you had a vacancy, you improved the unit, you could get it to free market or at least increase the rent in that unit. Everybody was benefiting. The tenants in the building were benefiting. The, uh, the city was benefiting. The, you have existing buildings that are being approved. And the landlord was making a little bit more money. And, and you know, Margaret, you mentioned that you um, owned a lot of these buildings uh, pre-HSTPA, pre-2019. And you had to change your business strategy moving forward. You want to talk a little bit about it? Sure, yeah, and I want to add on to what you said, Richard, because I think, you know, you're seeing the sheen come off of kind of private actors in the affordable space. For private landlords in the regulated space, it's that much further. I always joke that, you know, if, if the Sackler family and Big Tobacco had a love child, it would be a New York City landlord. Like, you know, we just, we, so it's like, there's kind of a toxic sort of feeling out there, right? And you're getting the secondary effect of that. I've heard lawmakers say, you know, 421A, yeah, some, you know, affordable units got built, but there was too much profit, you know? So there's just a turning away from that and a backlash. And I think it's the pendulum swinging, but, but what goes along with that when you have an overcorrection, like I think what we saw in 2019 with the HSTPA, is that I think you're seeing already and you're gonna to continue to see just a total outflow of institutional capital from this space. Um, you know, not that Sugar Hill is, you know, God's gift to real estate investing, but anyone who cares about owning these buildings responsibly is trying to get out. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting. You, you put up the transaction volume and rent stabilized is 18% in 2023 because, you know, so much of it is immovable. But I think that contributes to this perception that, you know, rent stabilization in New York is kind of a niche market that certain investors are in. And that's really not the case. I mean, almost half of rental apartments in New York City are stabilized. It's not a little corner of the market. I mean, everyone who's anyone who's buying existing multifamily in New York, for the most part, has some exposure, and the units are largely mixed in with free market. I mean, we have a subset in our portfolio that's entirely stabilized, which is, you know, particularly impacted. Um, but, you know, it's across the board. You know, there's major players in this space, Blackstone related. There's a lot of middle market investors like Sugar Hill. And I think there's going to be an outflow, and there already is, you know, of that institutional capital. It's kind of like the capital equivalent of a brain drain because it's very difficult to responsibly own this asset when your costs are spiking and your revenues are capped. Um, 
So, you know, we're one of the many who've really pivoted and, you know, we're sticking it out with our, what we call our legacy portfolio to do the absolute best we can. Um, but, you know, I think over time, others like us are going to pivot away from the space because you can't own it responsibly. So, yeah, yeah, we, we completely, I mean, we completely agree. Just to build on your point, everybody who is semi-institutional left the space or leaving the space and those who are taking um, or taking positions in rent stabilized housing, which is again a lot of units, about a million units, are private people. Yeah, I mean, famous. you said buyers, you know, make basically making a bet on the regulation changing. Maybe, but right. also the prices have gone down so much, 35 to 65 percent, yeah. that they're like, okay, I'll own it forever and figure it out. Uh, but that's not that's not the way institutions work. So there's no institutions, very few institutions in that space. They could have an unlimited time horizon and exactly. the ability to see the thin margin that's coming out of build any building just you know shrink down so every year. You saw that happen, and you you and your partners made the decision to move forward differently. Mm -hmm. What did you decide to do, and how did it come about? And where do you really find value today? Yeah, I mean, you know, before the rent law, we had kind of like a lot of others in our circumstances we had pivoted into private lending bridge lending um, so that business has really grown just with you know the rise in interest rates you know a lot of you know institutional lenders kind of stepping back given the volatility and everything going on in the market and so that's opened up an opportunity for us and we've been really busy there um, and then you know like I mentioned condominium development which isn't solving the problems that we're talking about you know small boutique con opportunistic condominium developments just not going to move the needle on New York supply but um, New York is on sale and you know if you can capitalize a project properly you know I think we're seeing some stabilization in construction costs I mean there was definitely a lot of spiking in volatility but we're seeing things calm down and we have a lot of visibility into that because we're lending to projects as well so just kind of looking across the market and seeing that um, and you know, also some geographic change, like mm -hmm. looking outside of New York. I think, you know, Richard and I were talking about that before, and it's sort of like I gave the analogy of, you know, the man looking for his lost wallet under the street lamp, not because that's where he had it last, but that's where the light is, you know. Um, so I think that, you know, that's, that's definitely in play. Great. So outside of uh, New York City, lending, maybe condo deals here, uh, super interesting. And, and Jesse, we were a second ago in regulation. I know that we were talking about the good cause eviction, uh, which means that for free market and might not allow uh, endless growth of rent and even might uh, encourage some litigation from tenants, which might change the way someone like you looks at investments of free market buildings moving forward. Um, any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't change our commitment to New York City um, because we're, uh, you know, part of a broader investment uh, portfolio and it's an allocation of risk. And for our investor, you know, they have uh, residential properties in Paris and Berlin where they have rent stabilization, you know, challenges far worse than ours. Um, so that is a political risk that, uh, you know, certainly needs to be evaluated. But similar to HSTPA, it's also a pricing issue. You know, it's, I think, very questionable whether we ever see the cap rates that we saw in New York City of pre-HSTPA, because there's just fewer levers to increase the revenues in these properties. And, um, you know, good cause eviction is going to remove, you know, another lever. And, um, you know, you won't be able to just be, um, able to benefit from market forces, positive market forces, which is the supply-demand imbalance in the city. 
um, is just a pricing issue. But we it's still are committed issue. to New York City. Yeah, you'll keep investing, but it's a pricing issue. So I'm, I'm curious to see how many people <coughs> think like you. It's, 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 a, it's a really interesting uh, observation. It's just going to be a price, but we're going to buy it. I like that. Um, but you know what? I have a question for all of you, and we, you know, we touched on on the supply of housing and the fact that there's no 421A, etc. What do you think, if you were a decision maker in the city or state, where where would you go with encouraging um, housing and and the production of housing and what kind? Is it affordable, middle income, free market? Any ideas beyond what we know? What, how would you go about it? Can we maybe talk about world peace instead? Yeah. I think it's easier. <laughs> In other words, why doesn't it happen so far? I mean, I have my own ideas, but why can't we see the politicians do what they need to do? I mean, you know, I, I think obviously the state legislature and Governor Hochul didn't get anything done last year. Right. Um, but I think that the governor was on the right track with looking at the problem more regionally um, at a statewide level. I mean, you know, we gather in these rooms and we wring our hands over supply in the five boroughs and we are literally ring fenced by, you know, single family lot zoned communities. And I think obviously like the single family lot in the suburbs in the New York area is a really a sacred cow. Right. Um, and I don't think you can mandate, you know, increasing density around New York City. We saw that and, you know, basically last year, Westchester almost seceded from the union, you know, when um, that was on the <laughs> table. But I think, I think you need to see incentive programs maybe that are broader and more regional and that you could start to see some easing up of the supply demand constraints in New York City if you did better around New York. Hmm. Um, so yeah, not focus I, I, just on New York, but right. focus around. Got it. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, Florida, I mean, DeSantis adopted basically the Hochul law in Florida, mm -hmm. just got it done. Um, and listen, there was, there's been a tremendous amount of, of consternation and hand-wringing in local communities that the state of Florida can override local zoning for purposes of, you know, creating affordability. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think that's um, because, of, because our issues are regional. I mean, I, I actually have been a proponent for a long time. No one listens to this, but I've been a proponent of actually... Um, Regional, regionalizing our housing approach across state lines hmm. here in the tri-state area. We are, um, you know, it'll never happen, but, um, but the, um, the housing market in Newark, the housing market in, in Bergen, Essex, and Hudson counties affects what happens here in New York. The yeah. housing market in, in Fairfield and Fairfield counties and and, uh, and Nassau and Suffolk obviously affect what happens here in New York City. And that needs to be an approach in the same way, quite frankly, that air travel and transportation and commuting uh, uh, is dealt with on a, on a regionalized basis. I think our housing market is probably equally as critical and probably as equally as dynamic in terms of the future of of, uh, of the area, mm -hmm. and I think we need to figure out some way to address that. Maybe HDC needs to be able to issue bonds and finance a project in, uh, finance a project in New Jersey. And New Jersey HMFA needs to be, you know, let's, you know, let's, you know, all, all bets are off. Let's make it the wild, wild west, because uh, otherwise, you know, we're not going to create the level of competitive dynamic that's necessary in order to, uh, in order to drive the market. But I can tell you one thing that we don't need. 
we do not need the piece of legislation that was dropped in Albany yesterday to socialize the affordable housing market and essentially give New York City the authority to build its own housing. Basically, under the theory that NYCHA has been so good, let's right. do more NYCHA. Yeah. Um, um, which is just crazy to me. But, um, but that's where they want to go with this, and I think that that's, that's really unfortunate. I, I think what we need to counteract that is we've got to get away from the villain David Goliath dynamic that's in play with real estate. I think real estate needs to kind of have a broader coalition with business interests and community interests that like these problems are in the interests of everyone and it's not a question of, you know, rapacious real estate developers chasing profits at, you know, at the expense of the little guy. It's like this is what we need for our city and our region to yeah. drive. And, and you know, we live in a tabloid. We live in a tabloid news market. And so when any one landlord does something egregious, right? Or, or, you know, one bad actor does something, right? It paints the entire industry yeah. in a in a mm -hmm. brush that then makes it very difficult for, um, you know, when I started in this business, you know, 30 years ago, it's just it's it's just hard for me to believe that the providers of the housing have lost the white hat. They're no longer we're no longer on the white horse. We are the villain, mm -hmm. and it's uh it's it's a really interesting place to be. I just would only add that uh, increasing supply of housing in New York City is so closely connected to rent stabilization because all of our residential neighborhoods where the subways access and where the schools are have a lot of rent stabilization. So you can't add supply in those areas. Yeah. We've run out of the Long Island and cities of the world, the Williamsburgs or the Hudson Yards, large areas that we could convert to new housing. Um, so where else are we going to develop? We're running out of places. So there has to be some connection to rent stabilized housing so we can develop in those areas, those traditional residential neighborhoods where we should be adding supply. Yeah, thank you. I, I, think, I think everything that was said here is uh, super insightful. I mean, the first thing is the narrative change, right? From, you know, just, just making sure that landlords and tenants are actually good people and are New Yorkers and yeah. uh, take it from there. And then what was interesting to me and is, is the global more holistic tri-state solution versus just New York City, uh, which is exciting to think about. Um, I want to ask, so we had a question, uh, an audience question, which we uh, asked uh, the audience to give us before. And the question was about the introduction of the national low-income housing bills, Workforce Housing Tax Credit Act and the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. Um, Richard, I'm not sure if yeah. you read those or, or have yeah. any opinion There's, of those. There yeah. are, uh, well, first of all, I'll just say that um, the, the, the landscape and the picture nationally from a political standpoint is slightly different. It's not entirely different. I mean, when you go to, when you go to local communities, right, there's as much, um, you know, throughout the country, there's as much, you know, we're, we're not any more NIMBY here than, than, uh, than you know they are. I mean, if you want to, you want to meet some real NIMBYs. You know, go to California. Uh, contrary to their, you know, contrary to their, uh, to their image. But um, you know, the the, the landscape uh, is slightly different nationally, and there's a tremendous amount of bipartisan support for the low, low income housing tax credit in 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 Washington. And there is a a bill called the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. That uh, that is making its way through uh, through the process. It's now part of the the key provisions in that uh, in that act are part of this uh, child 
this latest tax bill, which I think you referenced there, which is going to do, among other things, um, uh, expand the child care tax credit. And there's been some disagreement between the House and the Senate about, about that, and that, that may uh, jeopardize the whole thing generally. But anytime you make any change, because it's tax policy, anytime you make any change to the low income housing tax credit, you have to attach it to a larger tax bill. It, ha it can't just go forward Stand on alone. its own. It can't go on, it on its own. So the, the particular provisions that everybody's talking about would, uh, would increase the amount of credits on the street. It's about a $25 billion a year market. It would take it close to $30 billion, I think. Uh, increase the amount of credits on the street uh, to uh, the level that was adopted in the COVID stimulus. So there was a COVID stimulus bump for, for the credit. That kind of went away once some of that legislation went away. The, the proposal is to go back to that level. And then there's a secondary provision which would severely, which would significantly increase the, uh, the ability for local, uh, uh, local uh, housing agencies to issue uh, multifamily tax exempt bonds. Um, all great provisions. I think the bond provision is probably a little bit more valuable than the credit um, the, the credit provision, I'm not sure, because we sell these credits every day, I'm not sure that, that the market for these credits can expand that much without significantly impacting the value of the credit. Mm -hmm. We put more credits on the street, it becomes, they become harder to sell. We need to do, we can't just rely on this credit to get ourselves out of our affordable housing conundrum. It's an important tool. Um, and um, it's one that, you know, obviously we work with every day, but it's not the only thing that we need to do. Thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, that's uh, super interesting. And uh, we had another question that I'm not sure any of you want to answer, but we're going to ask <laughs> it anyway. How does, uh, how does the bankruptcy of WeWork affect the market? The bankruptcy of what? WeWork. Uh, all right. Uh, I don't really have any uh, office, but uh, I think WeWork covered up a lot of sins in the B-class office market before COVID. Uh, you know, when we found out that they took over as the largest tenant in New York City over J.P. Morgan, you might begin to question that space. Um, so I think that has just accelerated the issue so much for what's happening now in the office space in New York City. Um, on the residential side, which I have the correlation to when Airbnb was unregulated in the city, it really drove up rents, had a real impact, uh, consumed a lot of units uh, in the free market space. So, you know, when that was taken offline through regulation, rents, you know, went back down. You know, there was a lot going on uh, at that time. So that's the only thing I can um, draw on. But, like, we work should open up a lot of space that potentially increases the conversion opportunity for some office landlords. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's interesting. I think the one thing we see is that almost every office landlord now has some portion of their office as a co-working environment. Be we work with something else, and it's not just the revenue, it's also attracting tenants. Because if I'm a 10,000 square foot office tenant and I want to grow, that's one option that I'll have in that space. So, Interesting. I, I, yeah, and I, th I think that it's in bankruptcy clearly, so the business model works, but the numbers didn't. 
and it looks like they're negotiating leases. I'm optimistic <clears throat> that the business might stay alive. The question at so what, what valuation? And at what scale? Yes, and in what scale? You're right about that. Um, two predictions before we end. Number one, uh, if we look a year from now, uh, where are mortgage rates going to be? Lower, higher, the same? I know, I know you need a crystal ball for that, but let's try. Slightly lower. Slightly like 50 bips? Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's my prediction. And if Sh you sure, why not? <laughs> One dollar. Yeah, I, I'm pretty neutral on uh, interest rates. I mean, part of the issue is just spreads from banks having, you know, come down. There's so few players. Like, what's yeah. going on right now with New York Community Bank does not bode well, I think, for a reduction in spreads. Um, I think there's a big 10-year Treasury sale today, which will indicate what's going on the long end of the curve. Um, I, I'm net neutral on interest rates right yeah. now. And, and in our market, we, we follow closely because our, to the extent that our tax credit pricing is, is triggered to anything. I mean, it's a purely private market, right? You don't really know. It, you know, the, the banks and insurance companies that buy the, the, um, the credits do, do peg their after-tax yield to some spread between the, uh, between the 10, 10 year treasury. So we follow it fairly closely. So uh, sometimes the, this volatility can cause our tax credit pricing to go down significantly, reduces the amount of, it's kind of a whipsaw, reduces the amount of equity into the project, and at the same time increases the, the cost of the debt, so which makes it, you know, that you don't want those things going in those directions in the same project. And we have, um, so, so that's a problem for us. That's awesome. That's very, I mean, that's very insightful because I think what I heard is like not much is going to change, which is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, or not cool. We want it down. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's pretty interesting to hear it from, from the three of you. And I want to I wanna ask the, I guess the last question about, um, about 2024. Transactions and pricing, where do you think we're going to find ourselves a year from now? More transactions uh, and, or less transactions, higher pricing, lower pricing? Crystal ball, I know, but oh, still. Okay. Um, well, I, I think the low maturity issue is really snowballing. You know, the banks have something like 50% more maturities in 2024 right. than they had in 2023 because they deferred so much of the 2023 right. into, into this year. So that's either going to force a lot more delevering in paydowns of existing loans or it's going to force uh, sales. But I don't think there's going to be meaningful a meaningful change in sales volume unless interest rates come down 50 basis points. Like I think that would relieve uh, a lot of stress and create some uh, activity. But banks are suggesting that they are going to force the sales. We saw a bit of it in the fourth quarter that they wanted to get repaid. They needed to get repaid. They need the liquidity, especially the regional banks. So, you know, we believe that should increase the activity. But it can't really happen to like the second half of the year when we do expect some rate movement. I think generally um, our business will be up. We were down about uh, 20 percent year over year between uh, 22 and 23. Um, I think we'll be back probably not at 22 levels, but we'll be close. Uh, but that that'll be in other parts of the country that won't be here in New York City. Uh -huh. um, in New York City, we're going to continue to kind of limp along. Um, we just can't get anything built in New York City. Um, and uh, it, it affects every aspect of the market, and it, uh, it certainly impacts ours as well. So. 
I'll speak to the stabilized. I mean, I think you mentioned in your presentation like that there's going to be more mortgage maturities in the stabilized world. I don't know how much that will move things just because there's nowhere for the buildings to go, really. I think a lot of buildings will stay in limbo. But what I do think maybe will increase transaction volume is the signature portfolio getting worked out. I mean, it sounds like they're going to look at some kind of a restructuring where you can truly right size the loans and do like an AB where there's a for forgivable component. That could get the gears grinding again, at least on that subset, which is pretty significant, especially given what the baseline is right now for volume. Great. All right. Well, I, I want to thank all of you. That was really great. I want to thank Margaret, and Richard, and Jesse. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for enlightening us. Thank you. Thank you.